Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. On this special episode, we'll look back at the climate stories of 2020 by listening to excerpts from a year of climate conversations. With President-elect Joe Biden building a team of climate veterans, including John Kerry, the effort to decouple economic growth from carbon pollution is in a very different place than it was when the year began. For the first time ever, we'll have a presidential envoy on climate. Mr. President-elect, Vice President-elect Harris, I look forward to getting to work. Shortly after the election, Time senior climate correspondent Justin Warland retweeted, quote, where the virus was the worst, voters supported Trump the most. Warland further pondered whether, as climate change worsens, those affected will support leaders who offer climate solutions or those who deny there's a problem. There's a good question about whether people are going to look for the easy answer when it comes to climate change or whether they're going to look for really substantive Solutions and so th- this this connection just got me thinking, and you know it, it is pretty clear. Uh, you look at places like uh, South Florida, which voted for Trump more so in 2020 than in 2016, despite the growing uh, concern or evidence of trouble uh, with regard to climate. So I, I just I, I think about this question a lot, and I think a lot about whether climate change is going to fuel continued political uncertainty, whether it's actually going to uh, lead to solutions. You write about climate and race. How did those issues converge or not in the 2020 election? Yeah, there was a huge convergence of these discussions about climate and race uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, protests. Uh, You saw this uh, coalition that had been forming for really some time of environmental justice activists and climate activists that has grown for maybe the past couple of years come to support Joe Biden to push him on policies related to climate and race. You even have things like Kamala Harris uh, introducing legislation related to environmental justice uh, and, and climate just a week before she was selected as as the uh, vice presidential nominee. So a really interesting convergence of these two discussions. And what do we know about how Joe Biden is infusing climate change into his transition? What indications do we have about how ambitious he'll be on climate and how he will go about it? Yeah. So the statement that we hear a lot from uh, people within the transition, within the, the, the campaign, people who have his ear, is really that climate is going to be embedded in everything that he does. It's, you know, this phrase that we hear over and over again is whole of government approach. So, you know, climate is no longer just the purview of the Environmental Protection Agency, but it's something that comes into consideration if you're uh, looking at building housing via the, or supporting housing via the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or uh, when you're talking about how the Biden administration will approach foreign policy. This is also a, a important approach when you consider the possibility of a divided Congress, right? So it might be very difficult to pass legislation, but a lot of the way that the Biden administration can shape uh, and, and push climate ambition is going to be through the agencies and uh, through avenues that might not be the traditional avenues for, for climate policy. During the Democratic primary, candidates one-upped each other with their climate plans. Joe Biden initially had about a $2 trillion plan. Kamala Harris' plan was $10 trillion of public and private funding and called for reaching net zero emissions by 2045. Uh, I had to look up Kamala's climate plan. Does anyone remember it now? And is is there any evidence um, of her influencing the new administration's plans on climate? 
Well, that's a, a very good question. I mean, around the time that she was selected, there was a lot of controversy over the question of, you know, the Green New Deal and, and the fact that she had, you know, vocally supported the Green New Deal, the resolution. And then, of course, Joe Biden had tried to thread this really difficult needle where he supported the framework, but not the resolution. Um, all of which is to say, you know, the, the campaign uh, was very clear that, you know, this is Joe Biden's campaign. It's not Kamala Harris's campaign. And she supports Vice President Biden's agenda. Of course, I assume there's going to be some uh, influence, you know, when she is behind the scenes speaking and meeting with the president-elect. But certainly, I think they are very clear that this is his campaign and his agenda. Um, and uh, some of the more aggressive things that she might have supported are, are not part of his agenda. Looking ahead into 2021, what are you looking for to gauge uh, the Biden-Harris administration's kind of approach to climate? The one thing I think that is going to be evident from the get-go is to what degree is Biden committed to making uh, green measures, uh, climate measures, part of the stimulus package? And to what degree is getting a really big emphasis on uh, clean energy and on other climate measures as part of the stimulus a deal breaker? So, you know, if, if Biden is really willing to make that a priority and not uh, allow that to be something that kind of just gets lost in the shuffle, I think that's a really good indication of the importance that climate is playing uh, for his uh, administration. Justin Moreland is a senior climate correspondent at Time. Thanks for having me. The election of Kamala Harris as vice president of the United States has many profound implications for gender and racial equality. What's less obvious is how having a woman of color as vice president relates to embedded thinking about fossil fuels and climate disruption. The roots of the challenge are actually in extractive capitalism, which is entangled with racism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. That's Catherine Wilkinson, vice president of Project Drawdown. She and marine biologist Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson are co-authors of All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, which brings together women artists, writers, and changemakers at the forefront of climate action. Women and girls and non-binary folks are disproportionately harmed by the impacts of climate. And that's especially true under conditions of poverty um, for folks who are rural, live in the global South, uh, women and girls who are indigenous, black, of color, these things start to intersect. And because climate is a vulnerability multiplier, or we might think of it as an injustice multiplier, um, it has that effect on people's lives and communities. But one of the things that I really learned from Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, a self-proclaimed angry granny for climate justice, is that when you are closer to the problem, you're necessarily <laughs> closer to the solutions. And so that's the part of the story that's actually the most important. And Ayana and I think it's the part of the story that has been way too neglected. Ayana, when you're close to the problem, maybe there's some shame and culpability and therefore resistance to recognizing the interconnectedness that Catherine just talked about. I find that younger people see that interconnectedness more than older people. What do you see? 
I think there's two different kinds of being close to the problem, right? There's the kind Catherine was just talking about, which is you're experiencing the impacts of climate change. And then there's close to the problem, like you are creating the problem. Like you are the fossil fuel companies. You are the politicians that are, you know, stopping progress. You are people who are rejecting excellent climate science that we need to be making decisions on. Um, And, you know, those are two very different things. And so when we think about the work that so very much needs doing, it's allowing people who are living in communities that are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis to have a seat at the table, a leading role in crafting what those solutions look like. Whether you are a community in the Gulf that's getting pummeled by hurricanes, a community um, on the West Coast dealing with fire, we need to be much more creative and collaborative collective, less driven by ego, more driven by curiosity and creativity and an understanding of the, you know, communal stake in the outcome. And these these more more nurturing, mending approaches tend to be, you know, stereotypically considered more feminine. And so that is the energy, the perspective, the expertise that that finds itself throughout this book, in addition to the rigorous science, in addition to the um, deep knowledge of agricultural practices, in addition to legal prowess, it is the ways in which we um, use those tools that I think hold so much potential for a, a just a, a completely new wave of leadership, which is clearly what we need because, you know, the leaders we've had had to date have, have certainly not gotten us where we need to go. Our country's been mourning the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'd like to mention her and speak to her kind of feminine power at this moment when you're talking about more feminine leadership and climate. She's made some very important environmental rulings herself. So how do you connect RBG to this? an absolute expert and a titan in her field, um, you know, and, and a devoted, you know, grandmother at the same time, like really caring about the nurturing across generations and not taking any crap. That combination of just intellectual might and an ability to get things done, persuasiveness, expertise, and then also, you know, the association of the feminine with weakness is one that we absolutely need to shatter because that is simply untrue. I mean, anyone who can birth a child, like miss me with with calling feminine power weak. And so there's this opportunity to say, like, we need a welcoming, collective, communal, creative, nurturing approach to climate solutions that ensures that everyone can find their role in this work. Writer and marine biologist Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson on the feminist climate renaissance. With events in 2020 bringing systemic racism into even starker relief, making a just transition to a clean economy has increasingly become part of the climate conversation. Environmental justice is a civil rights issue, and we have to use those civil rights in order to protect our um, environmental rights. Daryl Molina Sarmiento is executive director of Communities for a Better Environment, an advocacy group based in Los Angeles. She was joined by former president of the California State Senate and current Los Angeles City Councilor Kevin DeLeon to talk about what a just and equitable transition from fossil fuels would look like. In the community in which 
we organize in in Wilmington, California, and the city of Los Angeles. You have oil drilling operations that operate 24 hours a day with um, trucks coming in at all hours of the night. You have exposed diesel rigs versus communities in more affluent parts of Los Angeles have um, electric rigs and they are fully enclosed and they have limited hours of operation. And so we need to challenge the way that permitting is happening and we continue to do that. But beyond that, we, we are pushing for a 2,500 foot buffer zone in the city of Los Angeles between sites of extracting oil and sensitive receptors such as where people live and where children play. Quite a start. And there's what, about 300 jobs at, at stake for that big change? Right, exactly. So when we're talking about just transition, if you have over half of the oil drilling sites in Los Angeles concentrated in a low-income community of color, there are currently within that situation 300 jobs at risk. And so this is the perfect opportunity for us to address the issue of just transition with this case to find the solution for these 300 jobs in order for us to move away from this harming industry right next to our communities. Kevin DeLeon, what's your idea of a just transition? It's a term that's used quite, it means, I don't know, different things to different people. What's your conception of a just transition? Well, a couple things. One is we clearly have to decarbonize our economy. We have no other choice. The scientists have already spoken loud and clear. This is a political issue. It's not a scientific issue. For those folks who are working in the extractive you know, industries, uh, who are working in refineries, um, we have to make sure that we can transition these folks to a clean energy economy. Uh, making sure that their salaries, their wages, their benefits are commensurate with what they're actually, you know, uh, receiving right now. For those who have been historically and socioeconomically marginalized for a whole variety of issues uh, due to ethnicity, due to immigration status, due to their zip code, uh, we have to make sure that we can provide a good paying job uh, with good benefits in the clean energy space. And the one thing that we've done here in California is to date we have created 500,000 jobs in the clean energy space. Now, I want to put this in context because that is 10 times more jobs in the clean energy space in California than there are coal mining jobs in all of America. So the impact that you can have, not just in California, uh, but in, in poor rural states that historically uh, have been dependent for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and I believe, this is my perspective, that the politicians who represent them at the local, state, and federal level have failed them quite dramatically, knowing that coal consumption domestically as well as internationally is going down. So they have been positioned and transitioned their constituents to a clean energy economy because it's a political situation, not a scientific or economic situation. So you want to make sure that regardless of your Latino, African-American, white, Asian-American, racially mixed, that especially if you're at the lowest economic strata, that that just transition allows you to have a good paying job to put a roof over your child's head, to pay for the clothes on their back and food on the table. At the same time, when you pay out of your pocket that energy bill, that we can make sure that we democratize the benefits of our climate change policies to make sure that every single individual, again, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, has access to the latest, the greatest, the most innovative and greenest technology. If we don't, then we'll continue to be a very polarized society where only those who have the highest educational attainment and the financial wherewithal to access that great and latest, the greatest and latest Korean technologies will be the only ones benefiting. So that means 
if you live in wealthy neighborhoods, whether it's in California or in the country, then you'll have an energy-efficient home, you have rooftop solar, you have a charging station, and you have an electric vehicle. But if a lot of folks don't have it, we'll never meet our macro target goal. So it's out of our own self-interest for our planet and for our own public health that we make sure that we, we have to have a just transition for everybody. Los Angeles City Councilman Kevin DeLeon on how to bring everyone along on the road to a clean economy. You're listening to a year of Climate One conversation. Coming up, climate change in a time of pandemic. We don't have a lot of people who are very prominent talking about how scary climate change is, but we do have a lot of people talking about how scary COVID-19 is. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're looking back at the year in Climate One conversations. U.S. elections aside, the biggest story of 2020 was the most widespread social disruption of our lifetime. A quarter of the world's population is now living under some form of lockdown due to coronavirus. As the COVID pandemic unfolded with unprecedented drama and speed, we explored how the climate conversation changed in the wake of the coronavirus. You saw this extraordinary energy around climate change that I'm worrying now has been evaporated because we've gone from an us everywhere forever mindset to a me here now mindset. Peter Atwater is adjunct professor of economics at the College of William and Mary. He joined us along with Susan Clayton, professor of psychology and chair of environmental studies at the College of Worcester to compare the human responses to invisible and deadly threats of COVID-19 and carbon pollution. Disease is a lot more um, immediate, a lot more scary than the idea that we're gradually destroying or, or harming the atmosphere and the ecosystem. So we definitely respond to that idea that our personal health is compromised. But I also think it's important to recognize that um, both of these things, because they are invisible, people are kind of relying on, they need to have the situation interpreted for them. So there's a really big role for the social media for you know, political figures and other people who are prominent and visible to explain to them. In, in one case, we don't have a lot of people who are very prominent talking about how scary climate change is, but we do have a lot of people talking about how scary COVID-19 is. Peter Atwater, you liken this moment where we have this looming threat that you, you liken it to when Hurricane Katrina was barreling down on the Gulf Coast and there's this big, scary thing offshore. It's coming. We can kind of watch it coming our way. How do you compare that Katrina moment to what we've been watching, experiencing with COVID-19? So what you could see was that, particularly from an American perspective, when the virus was contained in China, that, that was the first narrative that went along with that. There you had an existential threat that was far, far away and really, really not a threat with the view that it was contained. And what I could watch and see was the narratives brought it closer and closer to us. And one of the things about threats is that our anxiety rises exponentially as threats become closer and closer to us from a perception standpoint. And so you could see the level of anxiety turn to panic as it went from being afar and contained to being near us to now being among us. Right. There was the Tom Hanks moment yeah. uh, for the coronavirus. Uh, that was certainly, you know, someone who's widely beloved. Kind of uh, tell us about that, uh, that American symbol of what that meant. Yeah. So I think you had with Tom Hanks, it was interesting within a half an hour you had 
the, the report that he and his wife had been impacted by the virus, as well as the news from the NBA that the Utah Jazz had been infected. And I think those symbols are really powerful and important in terms of bringing that familiarity that Susan discussed very close to us. So suddenly people felt that if Tom Hanks had it, if an NBA player had it, it was likely to impact me. And what you could then see was this cascading impact in terms of of cancellations and closures. That to me was one of the major tipping points in this crisis is that through that conveyance, these symbols, the, the, the virus outbreak suddenly felt right upon us. And, and then you saw people respond accordingly. And Susan Clayton, that makes me think of vulnerability. It's like, oh my gosh, if Tom Hanks can get it, you know, you know Private Ryan can get it. What does that mean about, about uh, a normal person? So talk about you know, the vulnerability and how we assess our different vulnerability to these different threats. Absolutely. And it's not just Private Ryan, it's Mr. Rogers of all things. You know, okay. So uh, I think there was that, um, that Tom Hanks was not only somebody that everybody recognized and therefore um, it became much more real and immediate, but we do have this recognition probably uh, at some instinctive level that we're all vulnerable to disease. So we're very, um, we, we can feel very threatened by it. We like to uh, avoid things that might lead to contamination. And um, unfortunately, that kind of reaction sometimes underlies a lot of, uh, you know, racist um, responses, particularly in this case, it's the idea that it's a, it's a foreign virus that is invading the American body politic, um, certainly affecting some people's reactions. So um, that vulnerability to something coming from outside and something that, um, in the case of a virus, you know, literally enters your body is, uh, is disturbing on a very basic instinctive level. Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at the College of Worcester on the human response to the twin crises of COVID and climate. The novel coronavirus that jumped from bats to humans has also highlighted the related public health challenges posed by infectious disease and climate disruption. We have a window of opportunity to really flatten the curve when it comes to climate change. Aaron Bernstein is a pediatrician and interim director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health. He sees the implications of COVID and climate for public health as fundamental truths now staring us in the face. Nature has given us a few shots over the bow here with emerging infections. COVID's the most recent example, uh, but we've got MERS, SARS, HIV, uh, pandemic influenza. These are all diseases that, that have come into people uh, from animals. And, and if you look at these emerging diseases more broadly, it's, uh, the majority are, are wild animals. What ultimately is staring us in the face is the reality that we have taken advantage of nature to the point where uh, we're putting ourselves at risk. And, and on top of that, uh, we know very clearly what we can do to uh, make a difference to prevent things like COVID. And, and among the things that really matter are, are climate solutions. And in fact, in many ways, pandemic solutions are climate solutions. And, and now is an important time to be talking about those. So uh, be specific, what are some things that could be could reduce pandemics that could also uh, reduce uh, carbon pollution and climate change? What are some of those co-solutions? Well, a big one is deforestation. Uh, you know, we think about tropical forest loss as sort of a, a moral crisis. You know, what a, what a terrible loss to uh, everyone uh, and, and particularly to the species that uh, are in uh, tropical forests. 
But we know from many examples that the chopping down force increased risks of the spillover of pathogens uh, from animals into people. Uh, we don't know that exactly with COVID, um, but in other bat uh, diseases that have come out of bats, in Ebola, the, you may remember the most recent um, bat Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the evidence suggests that deforestation in West Africa actually uh, may have pushed bats into parts of West Africa that they weren't in before. And, and as you may know, the the most recent Ebola uh, epidemic in West Africa was was in a part of Africa that that they haven't happened in before, and so preventing deforestation is a climate solution. Preventing deforestation is also a solution to prevent disease emergence. We know air pollution <clears throat> is bad for everyone's health in all kinds of ways, and the evidence we have suggests that, particularly with respiratory infections like COVID, and, and we don't have direct evidence on COVID, but in its first cousin, which was SARS. You know, people exposed to more air pollution were twice as likely to die based upon the evidence we have. And so um, we have evidence that uh, air pollution not only can make people sicker, uh, but it may make people more likely to get infected with these pathogens as well. So burning less fossil fuel, which in China kills an estimated 1.6 million on an annual basis, uh, may be contributing to the spread of diseases like COVID there and, and elsewhere. Aaron Bernstein from the Harvard School of Public Health on what the COVID pandemic can teach us about climate and infectious disease. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. I'm Greg Dalton. Along with the public health crisis, the coronavirus shutdown caused an economic collapse that happened faster and hit deeper than most people could have imagined. This crisis has served to expose some of the vulnerabilities of the economy. And one of those is that we have such a large number of people living from check to check. Kathleen Day is finance lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of the recent book, Broken Bargain, Banks, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. She was joined by Amy Jaffe, director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations, to talk about the COVID recession and economic resilience. I like to have uh, two historical references uh, that come from the oil market, uh, and I think they're both important. After September 11. Americans inside the United States stopped flying for a period of time. Um, and actually, we did not go back to normal uh, domestic travel until 2004. So that can give you an idea of the challenge that we face, getting people back out and circulating and in airplanes again, uh, because this is actually probably less irrational uh, than the way people felt after a terrorist attack, which is what are the chances you're going to have every week you know, a terrorist attack in the airport, that was very low probability. So the second one I like to tell is uh, what happened after SARS in China. In China, SARS hit in the end of 2002, and uh, Chinese uh, citizens in Beijing and other big cities became afraid to use public transportation. And so car sales uh, in 2003 in China were up 30%. Um, so you do get these responses um, and and then and then they sort of lay themselves out over time, and it, it's not quite as uh, the, I think the downturn can be very sudden, and I think the recovery is is more gradual than maybe people are thinking. And Amy Jaffe, the oil there was an oil price war before this between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. What's that about? And isn't cheap energy good for American consumers who are pinched right now? Uh, they're not driving, but isn't generally cheap energy is good for the economy? Well, typically, cheap energy is considered sort of like a stimulus. You know, if, if you're a household, you're spending 
less on fuel and you're spending uh, less on travel and, uh, and it stimulates people to travel. And then the flip side is for businesses, I'm not having as high an energy cost so I can hire more people um, and support my business and the economy that way. The problem is because of the pandemic, we're not seeing a lot of those responses. It's not really serving as a stimulus in the same way. People are not likely to take a driving vacation from Memorial Day weekend unless something really changes. Uh, I think it's going to be a while before people are back to the airports. Um, so some of these traditional things that boost the economy uh, when energy prices are low uh, is going to be much harder this time to actually get that boost effect. Kathleen Day, what are some lessons from past crises in terms of what what works uh, pulling America out of a recession? Of course, it depends on what put it in in the first place. But what are some lessons from history? Right? Yeah, one one thing is is debt. And one of the lessons that we learned the hard way in the last crisis is that it wasn't that people needed more credit. They needed less debt. So the stimulus package now, if you give people a check, then they spend it. They don't need one check. They need a continuous source of income that they can use to pay their groceries and their rent. So I use this example of my local, one of my local pizza places here in DC. They, the owners made a decision to close so that their employees could go on unemployment. That gives them a regular check. Those people will be better off than waiting for a $1,200 one-time stimulus. So many people in this country, this crisis would be bad no matter what economically, but it has served to expose some of the vulnerabilities of the economy anyway. And one of those is that we have such a large number of people living from check to check. So any economic dislocation reverberates many times more with that group than with people who can work from home and continue to get a paycheck. Uh, so there's and there's other spots that are vulnerable. But how quickly we'll recover? You know, people are going to be dying to get out of their house to to uh, get haircuts, to go and see people again, to go to work. We may never bring the handshake back the way it was. Maybe people will forever use fewer paper towels. I know I will. Um, but I think uh, transportation, maybe not. But I don't think there's going to be the fear of flying the way there was in the after the terrorist attack. But what I'm hoping is the residual effect of this will be maybe to make people believe maybe this pandemic has something to do with climate, maybe. And in any case, maybe we should take science more seriously and not dismiss it. And maybe some of those 100,000 people who are employed in fossil fuels could be better deployed in renewable energy and in helping the infrastructure. So I'm hoping there's going to be some more thought about how to bolster the economy long term and not just look for quick fixes from cheap energy. Kathleen Day from Johns Hopkins University on COVID, climate and the economy. Making our economy more resilient to future pandemics and climate disruption means learning from the trials of the past year. Doing this work authentically means making sure all the impacted folks are in the room, not as a favor, but because it gives us a strategic advantage. Tamara Tozo Laughlin is North America Director of 350.org, a grassroots environmental group. She was joined by Gina McCarthy, President of the NRDC Action Fund and Head of the U.S. EPA and President Obama's second term, to talk about the changing political calculus for dealing with our converging crises. We're in the middle of a four-generation time period. There are four generations of people in the workplace. There are four generations of advocates, folks who started out at Woodstock with half an idea, ended up with a job. And I speak on behalf of 350 and just say that, you know, we're middle-aged at 10 years old because some groups started exactly two minutes ago 
and others have been around for over 100 years. And we're in a moment where we're all pushing for the same thing at once. Energy needs wisdom and vice versa. And so we are in a time when the youth agenda is no different than the Black agenda, than the Indigenous agenda. So for youth who are raising it, they are supported by middle-aged people who've been asking for it and by the elderly who are, in my opinion, are frankly willing to sacrifice everything. I've seen more seasoned people running out in the street to get arrested and putting their bodies on the line than I have in the last 15 years. If you find me a room full of seniors, I probably got the most reckless bunch you've ever seen. So we're not calling for a referendum on business as usual. We're calling for the end of business as usual. We're not calling for a wraparound plan where we figure out how to do a little bit of bad stuff. We're calling for the end of sacrifice zones. And that is about making sure nobody feels safe continuing to feed us a line instead of doing the work. So there isn't a single person in any committee who can hide out in their office and not respond to that. Gina McCarthy, so many white people have had you know, reckonings lately, sort of understanding things that people of color have said, yeah, we've been living with that. And that's, that's new to you. It's not new to us. What have you learned about your own white privilege since George Floyd was murdered? Oh, it's, you know, I think myself and a lot of people I know, people in my family and my friends and certainly my work colleagues, you know, we, we all of a sudden had to step back and and realize that our old wisdom of yeah I'm a good person you know I, I care about these things just sort of fell all apart and 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 I realized when I was doing work in climate that when you really think about all the work that needs to be done you you're thinking about all the housing that that needs to be retrofit you know and turned into electricity you're thinking of the transportation challenges then you watch covid-19 hit and you realize, you know, all of these challenges, the vast majority of them are really the result in many communities of just systemic racism. It started in federal law, you know, and it's worked its way and it's still happening. And then you look at, at how you grow jobs. And I'm not going to convince, you know, a, a coal miner to take a $90,000 a year job and, and then go put solar panels up for 20000 you know, we have to really look at the disparities here. And if we fail to do that, there is no lasting solution here. You know, we just got invited to be on a, on a, a really great national um, committee that's looking at how to address the housing crisis and how to get the homeless people taken care of. You know why? Because I have a lot of young employees and staff people at NRDC who are working on energy efficiency for all, which are programs that is really looking at doing energy efficiency in, in areas that have been left behind, the poor communities. It's saving them money. It's reducing energy demand. It's taking care of mold in houses that make our kids have asthma attacks. And you're looking at this going, this is how we want to act as environmentalists. I don't want everyone to come to my table. I want to recognize that going to these is where the action is because they can help define the solutions that are best for them. It's the same with transportation. Everybody's going to be making big EV announcements. I'd like to know how transit's going to recover from the economic crisis that we're in. If we actually think that the racial injustice can continue for a moment longer, then we have missed the entire message that, that the three of us are trying to give today. It is part and parcel of why we are where we are. 
somebody else designed that world. And we have to, as Tamara says, just redesign the whole thing and recognize that we're just not on a path to sustainability. It's not going to make my grandchildren the kind of future that they have, they need to have. And we can't tolerate it. It's a silly argument that just doesn't understand the kind of world we live in and the world we have to live in. Former U.S. EPA Chief Gina McCarthy on resilience and climate justice. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. Coming up, turning to technology in the marketplace to address our overlapping crises. The technology is there. It's now down to the politics and the financing that could actually make a future come true where we get to live our lives, have cheaper energy, and do it with zero carbon. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. As we think about the challenges of the past year, technology has helped us survive, thrive, and stay connected through the COVID pandemic. But does tech hold the same promise to solve climate change? I put that question to Saul Griffith, founder and chief scientist of Other Lab, an independent R&D lab. The only way to hit a target under two degrees, which I firmly believe is what we should do, is to, as quickly as possible, ramp up our production of the solution technologies such that we can then deploy them at what's called a 100% adoption rate. Meaning, you know, last year in California, I think it was about 10% of vehicles sold were electric and it was, it's about 2% nationally. We need to make that number 100% as soon as possible. It needs to be not just true for electric vehicles. It needs to be true for the heating systems in our homes. It needs to be true for our new power plants. So all new power plants need to be solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, or something that doesn't emit carbon. And we need that to happen immediately. So in some respects, it's not about politically possible. It's about what's technically necessary. But I think for the first time ever in human history, I think we can now tell you a story that the technology is there. And more so than the technology, it's now down to the politics and the financing that could actually make a future come true where we get to live our lives, have cheaper energy and do it with zero carbon. And we could do it on the timeline required to beat two degrees. But it does require incredible political commitment and something that quite honestly looks like a World War II level of effort in terms of our industrial base. And one of the things that comes up, there's technology, policy, finance, there's also individual action. So there's a debate here about credibility, moral clarity, not to be a hypocrite. Others say that individual action is trivial, can even lead to dangerous feel-good illusion that you're solving a problem if you go vegan or recycle or buy an electric car. So where do you come down on the role of individual action? Is it necessary and insufficient or is it a distraction? I think it is virtuous and I applaud everyone who takes individual actions, but numerically, it just doesn't do it. You can't buy enough stainless steel water bottles. You can't recycle enough packaging. You can't take enough public transport to solve climate change. I've actually started to see this as a question of infrastructure. So the 20th century version or definition of infrastructure, you conjure in your mind bridges and roadways and dams and large public works projects. And they bake into the world a way of being and a way of life. It's the same with your own personal life. I now, the transformations you need to do to decarbonize are a small number of things that are really infrastructure. They're decisions that you make once every 10 years. If you make those decisions correctly, you can then just go about living your life 
not emitting any carbon. If you make those decisions badly, you continue to emit carbon. Now, the challenge with that means you can't decarbonize your life with your daily purchasing decisions. You can have your anxiety sitting in the tuner aisle at the um, looking at the 45 different tins of tuna and trying to figure out which one killed the fewest dolphins, but that makes a very tiny impact on our emissions. The real decisions that count are, what do you drive? Can that be powered by zero carbon electrons? Is there solar on, the, on your roof? Is the heating and cooling systems in your house driven by electricity? Is that electricity supplied by zero carbon sources? So it's about your furnace, it's about your water heater, it's about your car, it's about your rooftop. And they're the things that as individuals we control. And from the household decisions that we can control, that's roughly 40, a little more than 40% of all US emissions. But if businesses have the same approach to thinking about it as an infrastructure and, and government and industry, then we can solve this. Inventor and entrepreneur Saul Griffith on technology and the climate challenge. High-tech innovations in the food system are going after climate-conscious eaters who know that the future of food means less animal protein. They're not targeting vegans and vegetarians. They're targeting die-hard carnivores. Sophie Egan is author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. She was joined by Chase Purdy, author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food, to talk about meatless burgers and other high-tech meals. Well, I mean, you basically do need three things to make cell-cultured meat on a you know simplified level. You need the animal, which typically these technicians will go out and you can just do a pretty harmless biopsy on a cow or a chicken or a pig or what have you. Collect cells. They typically want stem cells. And once you have these cells in a lab, they establish cell lines so that they don't have to keep going back out to animals very often. Once you have an established cell line, you can take a sort of a handful of these cells and you stick them in what's called a nutrient-dense liquid medium or a serum. So scientists have been working to create uh, essentially what are like plant-based or synthetic liquid mediums as best as they can um, for those cells to sort of happily sit in and proliferate. And all of that happens inside what's called a bioreactor. People in the industry are trying to call it, get the term cultivator out there. Essentially, it's a big stainless steel tank that's very fancy and very technical. And the cells sort of sit inside of it in the liquid and they do grow into fat tissue and muscle tissue. In some cases, these companies are growing connective tissue and you put those things together and you do have meat. What does it cost and when will it be available? When and where? That's a story that I think is like really interesting because often when people talk about cell cultured meat, they, the language they use kind of writes it off pretty quickly as being very far out in the future because of cost. But if you think about the fact that in 2013, when it was introduced to the world by Dr. Mark Post in London, it was about $1.2 million per pound, extremely affordable, I know. And like uh, in a matter of seven years, it has dropped like precipitously. Uh, in 2017, one of the companies said they got it down to 9000 per pound. And a year after that, that same company told the Wall Street Journal it was down to $1,000 per pound. Uh, most recently, whenever I was out in San Francisco talking to a few of them, um, they said they had like a $50 chicken nugget, which is down to about $45 per chicken nugget. And a company in Israel that I've spoken to, you know, by 2022, they're on track to having about $10 a pound. 
Sophie Egan, that reminds me what happened with the plant-based burgers, because I remember when they basically followed a Tesla model, you know, to make something that's that's very elite, uh, expensive, impossible foods came out in some very fancy restaurants in San Francisco and they had celebrity chefs, Tracy Desjardins and others. And now uh, you can get a Beyond Burger. I went to Carl's Jr. last night and got a Beyond Burger. So now it's, you know, it's a fast food chain. That happened quite dramatically and quickly. So is thinking about, you know, shifting protein, putting your sort of sociologist hat on, uh, you have a master's in behavioral you know, change, you know, think about, uh, you know, how is this happening? Is this sort of hitting the mainstream, hitting middle America? This is not a move from just the coast and Boulder and, and uh, Berkeley. Yeah, that's a great point. I think many folks are looking at the plant-based alternatives, just the pace of interest and increased sales, not only again, in, in impossible burgers, but you look at every category of the grocery store that's being disrupted with plant-based alternatives, yogurts and milks. Um, I think in this case, it's actually not so much the behavior, the, a behavior change story as it is a, a money story um, in the sense of they had incredible distribution very fast. And then they had um, really a, a quite a successful marketing campaign with um, all kinds of just showing up everywhere, right? And with uh, all kinds of celebrities and influencers. So those elements absolutely help to create um, two key elements in behavior change, which is the built environment. Are choices available to you in the first place? Um, do you, as opposed to having to go out of your way to find that choice? And then culturally, the social environment, is it normal, cool, and aspirational to eat in those ways? And so you have those two aspects that just, um, it made it almost impossible not to give into that interest um, and that curiosity to go try it. It's like, why not go try it? Sophie Egan, former director of health and sustainability leadership at the Culinary Institute of America on food technology and the market for clean meat. So what about clean cars? Has 2020 brought us any closer to the end of the internal combustion engine? In about five to 10 years, we'll see the grid will become much cleaner and the benefits of electric vehicles will become bigger. That's Hui He, China Regional Director for the International Council on Clean Transportation. She joined Colin McCarricker, Head of Transport Analysis for Bloomberg NEF, for a look at the global EV market. When you sell a car, when it rolls off the line, for an internal combustion engine vehicle, you are locking in its efficiency, right? Its efficiency is fixed. Its emissions are fixed. If anything, they deteriorate over time. The benefit, if you're talking about decarbonization of the EV side, is that you can sell a car and it can get cleaner over time, as you say, the, as the power grid cleans up, the emissions clean up. And I live in the UK. Uh, when I moved here, coal was about 48% of the generation mix in 2010. This year, it's going to be about 4%. And so those EVs that were bought in 2010 or 2011 are driving much, much cleaner than they were when they were purchased. And when we're talking about long-term goals of decarbonization, then you really need to do these things concurrently if you're going to have any hope of hitting some of those longer-term targets. And then, of course, there's all the, the benefits around urban air quality and things like that, too. So what is the big picture here, uh, Colin, uh, in terms of greenhouse gas implications? That, you know, Is this really making a dent in the, in the climate budget? Not yet. Um, the reality is there's still only about, well, at the end of this year, we figure there'll be about 10 million uh, electric vehicles on the road globally. And those are displacing about 1 million barrels of oil. But actually, that's including two-wheelers. And there's a lot of electric two-wheelers, mostly in China. And most of that displacement is actually from the two-wheeled segment. So if we were saying which is having the biggest impact today in terms of CO2 emissions, 
it's probably electric two-wheelers, then uh, electric buses, both of those in China, and then third, the global passenger electric vehicle fleet. So there is an impact today, but the vehicle fleet is so big, it takes such a long time for these trends to have an impact because you're impacting new vehicle sales right now. New EV sales are going up, but there's still 1.2 billion vehicles on, or passenger vehicles on the road in the world, and it takes a long time for that fleet to turn over. So in our forecasts anyway, we still have uh, emissions from road transport rising for another 10 years. Um, a lot of that coming from the commercial vehicle sector. But then as EV share starts to rise uh, in the fleet and those fuel economy regulations probably tighten further for internal combustion engine vehicles, then it really starts to bend down in the 2030s. I want to end on, on technology. Uh, some analysts say that the countries that that lead and dominate in electrical technology, battery technology, will really be in a strong position in the 21st century economy. That has seemed to be China. I'd like to know how China, the U.S., and Europe are stacking up on the tech race for batteries and all the technology that's that's moving away from this 100-year-old uh, internal combustion engine. Huihe, where is China relative to Europe? in the U.S. on the tech race? China is not lagging too far behind on electric vehicle-related technologies. And there are some indicators. In the past 10 years, if we say one most successful thing that China did to push for uh, vehicle electrification was that China poured in a lot of money to build almost a homegrown uh, supply chain for the electric vehicle batteries. So from the raw material side, China is well prepared. China owns in either directly or indirectly a lot of the world's reserves uh, for uh, rare metals that is critical for building batteries. And then moving along the supply chain, China is acquiring more and more technology, its own technology uh, for like battery cell production, battery cell packaging, you need to package all the cells into one pack and make that pack very efficient. China is moving slowly but progressively on that trend. Moving forward, uh, I'm not so sure under the current international dynamics, maybe the international collaboration will slow down and China will have to resort more on its uh, uh, internal resources to continue the technology development. But at least I see in the past, international collaboration is a big push uh, for electric vehicle technology development. Wei He is China Regional Director for the International Council on Clean Transportation. You've been listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. To hear the full episodes and more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or telling a friend. We welcome your feedback of all kinds. My email is greg at climateone.org. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is a strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>